Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and today we're going to be taking questions submitted from the audience. And we've got a few different topics to talk about today. First, we're going to be talking about using plugins to color your sound, what kind of things to be listening out for, and how certain plugins might be eating into your headroom. We're also going to be discussing how to use reference tracks in the tracking and mixing stages. And I'm going to share a common mistake that a lot of people make when they're comparing their mixes to other recordings. That if you do it, you can actually make your mixes sound worse. And then lastly, we're also going to be talking about compressing on individual channels rather than on a group fader. And I'll also share my personal philosophy for using compression in your mixes and how there's a couple different ways that you can use compression in order to get the results that you're after. So let's not waste any more time, let's dive into the questions. So our first question comes from Yannick, and he asks, it's a bit of a lengthy question, when adding or stacking many of the same plugins that color the sound simply by just adding them on a channel, could one introduce overload in certain frequencies? And how would you go about this? For instance, do you group channels to not add too many of the same channel strips, or would you use many different ones? Is that even a problem? I produce electronic music and my sound space gets very full very quickly, so freeing up bass space is essential for me, as is panning. But you don't often hear engineers talk about, let's say, like opening 32 Neve EQ emulations in a single mix. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, Yannick, I think the first question that you really need to ask yourself is, why would you even want to have 32 Neve channel strips on your mix? And I don't mean for that to sound like I'm saying all Neves are bad or anything like that, I think the bigger question is, is it something that you're doing just because people say that mixing on an Eve sounds great? Or is it something that you're adding to your mix because you're aware of what it's going to sound like and it's going to help you get the mix that you're looking for faster? Personally, I never do this in mixes, uh, so maybe I'm not the right one to answer this question. But I'm never one to put on a whole bunch of Neve channel strips or SSL channel strips or anything like that. For me personally, whenever I'm working on a mix, and whenever I'm adding a plugin, the first question I ask myself is, what is this plugin going to do for me? Is it going to get me the results I'm after faster? Like, does it have the right EQ points that I'm looking for? Does it sound good? Um, do I like the interface of it? You know, like, what what am I going to ultimately get out of this plugin? And why am I adding this plugin? So for me personally, I use so many different plugins, so many different EQs, so many different compressors because each one of them handles sounds in different ways and I like to tailor that to my mix. To me, I'm not really concerned with the idea of simulating a Neve board or an SSL or anything like that. To me, at the end of the day, you're mixing for the song and if you're going to be adding a plugin that is going to color the sound a certain way, you want to make sure that that sound that it's adding is going to be helping you and if it's not, then don't include it. You know, if, if you're finding that you're adding a whole bunch of Neves and then you're getting, you know, a bit more of a warmer tone because you have like 40 different instances of it, well, maybe you don't need that warmer tone on everything. Maybe you're not even using that EQ plugin or that channel strip or that compressor. And if it's adding sound in a way that's negatively affecting your mix, get rid of it. You know, there's not really a point in adding something to your mix just to simulate some piece of gear that isn't really going to be helping you overall. 
Now, as for your question about adding multiple instances of plugins that color your sound and whether they'll cause overloads of certain frequencies or in your headroom, most plugins are fairly transparent. And really, a lot of the character that people describe is typically things that you hear when you really drive a transformer in the gear or you get into that distortion range. That's where you really start to hear how different pieces of gear react to different sound sources. And most gear is designed to work best at a certain input level. So you definitely want to be making sure that you're reading all of the manuals for these plugins or for your hardware, because you want to make sure that you're really giving it the proper signal that it really needs in order to get the right character out of it. But yeah, in terms of whether or not adding a plugin is going to all of a sudden add 10 dB of 80 hertz or something like that, I've never noticed that with any plugins that I've used personally. Um, if anything, the thing you will get is often a lot of plugins will have extra gain added to it on the output. I believe it's the Universal Audio Pultec plugins. When you add those, they immediately add something like 3 dB of gain on the output. So yeah, if you add multiple instances of those Pultec plugins, you're going to be really eating into your headroom because it's got that output gain added to it. So you just got to be really aware of that kind of stuff and make sure that you're adjusting the outputs accordingly. Or if you are hearing an accumulation of certain frequencies because you have multiple instances of these plugins going on, then make sure to be using your EQs to properly cut those frequencies if they're not necessary. Or just delete the plugin altogether if it's not helping you. You know, again, keep your focus on the context of the mix, not on the gear that you're using, and make sure that whatever you're adding to your mix is ultimately going to get you the best sound for the mix. Our next question comes from Jesus Mago, and he says, I cannot for the life of me find a genre that fits the current music I'm working in, so it's really hard to find a reference. Can you give me any input on what to do in this case? Well, man, I think it really depends on what stage of the process you're in. If you're in the tracking stage and you don't have any references for what the band sounds like, well, then I would just have a discussion with the band and ask them, like, wh who are their influences? Who do they model their tones after? Who do they respect? And what do they see as their vision for their sound? And then from there, listen to those references and try to create those sounds in the studio. Now, keep in mind, you don't always have to have a similar genre of reference material to the genre you're working with. And this is something that you can apply in the mixing stage as well. You know, you should be listening to reference tracks as a way of trying to figure out how to get that balance of the low end in your mixes, the top end, get the relationship between the vocals and the music. You can use references for all of that stuff. And there's been times where I've even been mixing a punk band and I've put on a Taylor Swift reference track because I really like the relationship of the vocals to the music. Or there's been times I put on like a country record when I'm working on a punk band because I like the way that the drums sounded and they were really dry and I was trying to capture that kind of sound. So, you know, reference tracks don't need to be genre specific. They could be to whatever vision you have for the track you're working on. Now, in terms of if you're talking about using references in the mixing stage, one thing you have to be really aware of is that in the mixing stage, you can't be chasing sounds. And by that, I mean, don't put on reference tracks and say, okay, you know what? We need to EQ our guitar to sound exactly like the guitar in the reference mix, because that's impossible. You won't be able to do it without having the exact same player, the same guitar, the same mics, the same room, the same preamps, all that kind of stuff. You're never going to be able to totally recreate a sound. 
And a lot of people will try to add a lot of EQ and compression and blah, 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 trying to emulate certain sounds. And what they end up doing is they find themselves in this rabbit hole where they're just constantly chasing their tails, trying to recreate the sound that they'll never accurately 100% recreate. And what they'll end up doing is adding way too much processing, way too much EQ or compression, and they'll end up taking away from the vibe of the actual original track. And if you do that, you can find yourself really ruining your mixes very quickly. So what you want to be doing with reference tracks is listening to the relationships of the instruments in the reference track and paying attention to things like, you know, is the kick drum sitting lower frequency wise than the bass or is it the other way around? You know, are the drums really roomy or do you have a really dry sound? Do the vocals sit really present on top of the rest of the mix or are they a little more blended into the track? And what's the low end sound like or the top end sound like? Is it really boomy and bassy? Or is it really sharp and bright or really dull sounding? These are all kind of things that you can listen to when you're listening to reference tracks. And they're going to help you understand your speakers better so that you can make mixes that translate better as a whole. You know, if you're listening to your mix and you're hearing that you have a ton of low end and your speakers are sounding really big and full, but then you put on any other commercial recording and those recordings sound a lot thinner on your speakers, well then... Take that as a hint that you need to reduce the low end in your mix because if you were to put that mix on a different set of speakers, you're going to end up having this really bottom heavy mix that is going to sound like crap on a different set of speakers. But if in the studio you were trying to use the reference tracks to figure out that relationship of the low end, the top end, all that kind of stuff, then if you can get your mix in the same ballpark, you'll have mixes that will translate much better to other sets of speakers. So don't get too hung up on the whole genre thing. Instead, just talk to the band, see what their visions are for the track, and try to use those references. Or in the mixing stage, use reference tracks just to help you get the overall balance of the low end and the top end and the volume balances between the vocals and the music and all that other kind of stuff. And that'll help put you in a much better position. Our last question comes from Stefan Riccardi, and he asks... When mixing drums, do you like to add compressors on individual drum tracks, or do you do it on a drum bus? That's a great question. When it comes to compression, there's two different ways I like to approach compressing things. And the first way is to add character to a sound and by shaping it. And the second way is to use a compressor in order to control the dynamics. Now, I think a lot of people, when they think of compressors, they think of it as this dynamic tool. And, you know, you think of leveling off the sound, all that kind of stuff. But compressors are very powerful for changing the character of a sound. And especially when it comes to drums, you can really use compressors to shape the attack of a sound and give it a much sharper sound, much sharper transient. Or you can dull the sounds by using quicker attacks and reducing that initial transient sound. So for that reason, I like to use individual compressors on the individual tracks. And I like to first manipulate those tracks and, you know, if I need more, more punch on the kick, then I'll adjust the compressor to fit that sound. You know, maybe I'll have a slower attack on the kick drum sound and, you know, faster release just to get that punch out. And then for the snare, maybe I'll do the same thing. Maybe the overheads or the room sounds, I'll crush the crap out of those and bring up a lot of that room tone. And then on my drum bus, what I like to do is I usually just put a compressor on that just to control the dynamics a little bit more and to tame some of the big peaks where maybe I have a snare hit that's like obnoxiously loud or much louder than the rest of the hits. And usually with the drum bus compressor, I like to compress it fairly lightly. I use a lower ratio on that. 
And I'm just really skimming the surface just to take care of any of those massive peaks that happen if there's a drum hit that's way too hard and that kind of stuff. I'm just really focused on trying to reduce the dynamic range on that drum bus in order to get the drums to sound bigger, fuller, louder, and have a little bit more room tone, a little bit more character. But as a whole, I'm pretty light with the drum bus compressor because a lot of the heavy lifting really comes from those individual channels. You know, I really believe that the way to get drums to sound really cool and have a lot of character is to treat each drum individually and with the compressors you can get a lot of attitude, a lot of aggression out of them and you can really treat each drum on an individual basis in order to make sure that it cuts through in the mix. So that's it for this week's podcast guys. I hope you found these questions and answers very helpful. And as always, if there's anything that you'd like to have me cover in this podcast or in any of the videos that I post on my website, please make sure to send me an email. The email address is questions at masteryourmix.com. And just make sure to make the headline podcast questions, and I'll make sure to take a look at it and get you the answers on a future episode of the podcast. And also, if this is your first time hearing about MasterYourMix.com, please make sure to check out the website. Right now, if you go to the website, at the top of the page, I'm giving away a free copy of my Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide to helping you with using EQ and compression across a variety of tracks in your mixes in order to help you get results faster and know exactly what to be listening for and what settings to dial in. One last thing. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what you've been hearing, please go to iTunes and leave us a comment and a review. By doing that, it allows us to be exposed to more people in order to keep this podcast going and help people like yourselves with their mixes. So that's all for now, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Hope you have an awesome day. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.